I just remember renting The Prestige and The Illusionist at the same time. It was a confusing year. Yeah. Yes. Rosenbaum was an illusionist stand. Yeah. Yeah. In those in the wars, in the magician wars. <laughs> I remember, you know. Yeah, I'm not a stan of either, but I do remember the magician wars. <laughs> Prestige Prestige's Hugh Jackman and Hugh Jackman. Bale. Right? And then Illusionist is is um And Bowie's in the Prestige. Yes, and, and that and the Illusionist is Edward Norton. Edward Norton, that's right. That's yeah. right. Edward that's Norton. all I remember though. I don't know if anyone else was in it or just him. Never saw it. Uh, I mean, obviously, the Dark Knight movies are all fucking trash. Yeah. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh. Well, tell the truth, this guy's starting to get on my It's hot out there. Let's we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, friends. Welcome to the Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and with me are Andrew Stasulis and Ryan Saunders. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a theme for the week and the other two hosts pick movies in response to that theme. And we come on here and we have it out. And it was my turn to pick the topic this week. It's episode 90. And I wanted to throw the guys a a little curveball, you know, and, uh, Lighten the mood up a little bit in here, and so I asked them to bring romantic comedies to the show. Not exactly our our home turf, I would say, as a as a podcast or as cinephiles. Uh, I think we all like them to to varying degrees. But uh, if you've listened to the show long enough, you know what what we're into, you know. But we have we have crossed paths with some uh, very funny and very romantic movies, you know, throughout. Uh, our tenure here, you know, and it was nice yeah. to get nice to get two more uh, in the old gauntlet books, you know. I feel like the honeymoon week was like both sort of romantic comedies yeah. on a certain level, right? I think so. Absolutely, and I think uh, an autumn's tale, which we can certainly compare to one of the films oh, yeah. uh, here today, uh, is a classic romantic comedy to me now. After after doing that one, I'd even call George Kuchar's Weather Diary Number One a romantic comedy in certain respects. It's love of the land, yeah, <laughs> yes, his own yes. love affair, trials and tribulations of that love, you know. Yes, um, and so yeah, that's uh, that's what I asked, and they. Delivered, And I think uh, in an interesting way that hopefully we can sort of unpack, I think both films, you know, the films that you selected uh, are doing, you know, using the romantic comedy to do other things, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's always what's so interesting about genre and its flexibility. So uh, definitely going to be a going to be a fun discussion. Andy, you had the earlier film. That's correct. Why don't you bring it on out? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, as you said in your intro, I would, I would fully and and readily admit 
that uh, I am not a person who actively seeks out the pleasures of this genre, although I do stumble across them from time to time. And I think, you know, part of the issue for me is that I have a very um, dark, twisted, and ironic sense of humor. And I think that a lot of romantic comedies are so much more earnest that I sometimes struggle with them. Um, but that's not to say that I don't also um, give in to them, let myself get into them when I do come across one that I think is is particularly well-made. Um so for me, you know, I was sort of like, oh boy, I mean, I think I even texted Ryan like, man, this is, you know, I'm kind of racking my brain here a little bit. Um, you know, and I was just sort of like looking at, at things that I hadn't seen to be like, maybe I should check out some that I haven't seen before. And, you know, again, I just, you know, uh, it's part of the reason why I don't actively pursue them because there were so many that I just like that. I'm not, nah, I don't, that, you know, I just kept saying like, nah, 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 nah. And then I was like, you know what? Growing up, there was one that I really, really enjoyed, one that I absolutely loved. And partly, I think, because it's a bit of a oddball take on the romantic comedy genre. And it's also featuring a, a central performance by an actor who I, I, I greatly enjoy or have enjoyed many of his, his works, but also... Uh, what, what I always hold on to with this film is that in my mind and memory, it has a absolutely stellar supporting cast of weirdos and great, great actors. So I, I, I couldn't resist, um, and especially considering some of the, 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 the turmoil my household has been in, I, I just wanted, I guess, um, some chicken soup for the soul. Um, the film that I brought is from 1993, directed by Thomas Schlamm, I would think. Schlamme, Schlammy. <laughs> Thomas Schlamm, who really is a director uh, mostly of, of, I think, television or various comedy specials. Like if you look up their filmography, not much of a, a feature, uh, a feature creature, I guess you could say. But the film is really a vehicle that was more or less reworked and rewritten by its star, Mike Myers. The film is So I Married an Axe Murderer. Uh, for those who haven't seen this film, Mike Myers plays Charlie McKenzie, a seemingly successful contemporary beat poet living in San Francisco. <laughs> and uh, in addition to his his you know, nightly forays into the world of, of um, live poetry readings. Uh, Charlie struggles with romantic commitment. We learn that very quickly in the film. Uh, this is a man who, uh, as soon as he gets close or serious to a woman he's seeing, dating a girlfriend, he finds some reason to break up with them. He runs head first, headlong away from that commitment. Um, however, in the course of this film, he will meet a woman who will steal his heart, and that is Harriet, played by Nancy Travis. Charlie quickly uh, becomes smitten with her and starts to feel things he has not felt before. 
unfortunately, though, uh, he learns that there is a serial killer. Uh, he, he discovers this in the, the Weekly World News, or the paper, as his mother calls it. And there is some, some uh, Merry Widow killer, right? This uh, Mrs. X, she's known, who goes around marrying men and murdering them. And three men have already met their demise by her hands. Charlie, through a set of comedic circumstances, which we're going to bring up later in our discussion, I'm sure, begins to suspect that Harriet might indeed be Mrs. X, the serial killer. This, of course, leads him down a path of paranoia, fear, and again, uh, a, a big struggle with commitment. Um, man, it is, I think, um, a really amusing film. It's a really funny movie. I think if you're a fan of Michael Myers especially, you'll you'll really appreciate it. But again, uh, the 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 supporting cast who all deserve their 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 time in the spotlight in our conversation tonight, I think are are what really really make this movie for me work so well. Um, and it's a film that was not very successful on its release. It followed um, the it followed the gargantuan smash hit of Wayne's World, where Mike Myers' stock couldn't have been any higher. Well. I, I, it would actually get much higher, actually, right, Austin Bowers? And, but, but this is him on the upswing in a big way. And so this vehicle was sort of put together for him. Uh, they were given a big budget to work with, and it didn't even make back, I think, half of its $20 million on its initial release. But over the years, it has become something of a popular cult Film and and I think uh, I think I know why. So that is the film that I brought to the table. So I married an axe murderer. Thank you very much, Ryan. Why don't you tell us about the film you brought? I've recently been really warming up to romantic comedies. Maybe it's because I find myself getting busier, more stressed, all these other things, but I, I feel as though I've opened up to them significantly, especially just within the past year. I recently caught some screenings. I saw The Wedding Singer, which I had never seen before with Adam Sandler. I talked about that with you guys. Loved it. Was really touched by it. Thought it was very, very, very pleasant uh, and funny and nice and felt romantic. I saw Simply Irresistible with Sarah Michelle Gellar, which is sort of like a Dada-esque romantic comedy that like veers into Minnelli territory at times where she's like a cook that makes these pastries after she's been granted love that like make everyone want to fuck each other. Great, really fascinating, strange movie. I would recommend people check out Simply Irresistible. But yeah, it was tough. I, I felt like I was spoiled for choice. You know, I it was uh, very welcome to kind of dive in and think like, oh, what what angle could I, I go with this? And, you know, I did have a goof option uh at one point that you know perhaps we could talk about a little bit later but i did i did watch in full and i know marsh watched in full um oh, which yeah. was uh a really special chicago set film starring uh the great lance bass and joey fatone of in sync called on the line um but i'm not gonna i'm not gonna take up too much time uh 
chewing over that thing because I think maybe we could save this a little bit treat for later on. But uh, Andy, I'm I'm excited to share that film with you um, so you don't have to sit through it like like we did. But so I did, you know, I experienced that and I was like, ah, this isn't, you know, I, I pick goofs sometimes, but this isn't what I, this isn't what I'm looking for. And I knew, you know, I, I was thinking about uh, romantic comedies have the good ones make you feel warm. You know, they, they make you feel like you're falling in love and they feel very nice. And so this film that I ended up landing on kind of came across my radar as one of those films, one that people have championed as having this real warmth and sentimentality and simple beauty to it. So I thought, okay, let's dive in. Uh, funny enough, it was, you know, I, I guess I bought into the marketing of this film as just this, you know, lovely traditional romantic comedy of which it uh, certainly is not. And I like the way that you kind of phrased it at the beginning, Marsh, they're, they're doing things with the romantic comedy, right? Like this, the film I picked, I would almost call a mom-com or like a serial comedy. A mom rom com. Yeah, it's but it's got a lot of love. It's got a lot of laughs. It's got a little tears too. Um, but so the film I landed on is called Saving Face from 2004, directed by Alice Wu. The film tells the story of a Chinese American surgeon named Will, um, who very early on in the film has a, a parting glance with another woman at this big gathering, Vivian, and they strike up an immediate connection. You know, there's love firing off between both of their eyes, right? And, and that grows and develops. But I, I'm almost delighting this because really the front half of this movie is dedicated to Will's relationship with her mother, which does have a lot of parallels with the director Alice Wu's experience with, with her own mother. And very early on in the film, like the first big bomb that's that's dropped is that Will's mother, played by the great Joan Chen, is pregnant. Her mother is a widow. Her, her you know, Will's father had passed away and here comes her mom. Unbeknownst to her, suddenly she's pregnant and they we don't know who the father is because that, of course, this is like very treacherous territory, you know? This is, talk about saving face, right? The idea of like, we have to keep our composure and we can't really be dealing with these kinds of issues. Ma doesn't want to talk about it, you know? she's seems to be going through with the pregnancy, but this is something that is really cataclysmic for the family. So that's a huge source of comedy and, and tenderness for the first half of the film, but Ma moves in with Will. And all the while, Will is having this relationship sort of behind the scenes, right? She, you know, there's some tension between the like traditional Chinese conservative family dynamic that's at play here, which she doesn't want to point out the fact that she is a lesbian and is having this gay relationship. And the film is, is really lovely. And it's, it's based off of what Alice Wu had originally intentioned to be a novel that she was working on. And this was like a studio release. It had gotten shopped around. Eventually, Will Smith's production company, Overbook Entertainment, picked it up. And right, you think about making a film about two lesbian Asian Americans falling in love and the studio thinking about how they would want to market it and deal with it. Alice Wu faced a ton of opposition. First thing that they thought, the studio, when they saw it was, oh, this is like my big fat Greek wedding. Great. Like, we'll be able to do something with this. They wanted her to oh change the characters to white. They wanted Reese Witherspoon and Scarlett Johansson to be in it. 
um, just really stripping it bare of everything that Alice was was trying to work with with the film. Um, and thank God she got her way because I th think it's really pleasant. I think it's really nice. It's a very soft film. Um, not as many laughs as I was expecting. Just overall, it was a little different than what my initial impression of it was. But yeah, it's 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 a lovely film, and I'm excited to hear how you guys responded to it up against So I Married an Axe Murderer. I think it's an, an interesting pairing, to say the least. Thank you very much. Yeah, uh, I mean, for me, you know, I'm a huge fan of, of the classic Hollywood screwball comedy. That's sort of where my my love of the genre lies and, and largely remains, you know, mostly as a byproduct of, you know, growing up in the 90s with an older sister. I've seen all the the U Grants, you know. Uh, <laughs> I was I was raised on that stuff. So I think at a certain point I I rejected that kind of thing, you know, and of course, later in my life, I've come to appreciate, you know, obviously stuff like James L. Brooks and, and Albert Brooks and like that mm -hmm. approach or even, you know, Jonathan Demme's approach to, to romantic comedy. Or, of course, I know Ryan Johnny Toe's approach to romantic comedy, which we've yes. covered on this podcast, you mm -hmm. know. Um, but in general, you know, yeah, uh, this was was an interesting double feature because it got me thinking about romantic comedies in ways I, I don't normally because again I think both of these films are atypical of of the genre while also retaining really all the hallmarks even so I married an axe murderer I yeah. I, rem I vaguely remembered it from childhood but I was like does it is it really you know and then watching it back I'm like no like it's plot structure to a T you know is is that you know um, yeah. all the rhythms are there Yes. Yeah, and I, it was funny because while I was watching Saving Face, every time I thought I was starting to feel bad because I didn't want to buck up against the topic, I was really excited about it. But every time I was thinking like, oh no, is this like not a romantic comedy? Because it would get really serious, it would go on these diversions, and then there'd be a beat that would hit and it'd be like, yep, okay, here we go again. Like, this is a romantic comedy. I mean, without getting too far ahead of ourselves, it climaxes at an airport. We still get the airport chase and everything, mm -hmm. you know, like those things are still in here, but then it uses that spine and just like interacts with it in a different way. Yeah. And I think, you know, for me, the best way I can I can describe the approach here uh, for both of them is is personal. Uh, for Alice Wu, it's obviously like a somewhat autobiographical uh, tale, right? Something very personal to her that's sort of balancing that with the demands of, of Sony uh, and Will Smith, you know, make it more of <laughs> make it more of a romantic comedy. And, you know, she's uh, kind of bucking up against that throughout the film and making this personal thing under the guise of a romantic comedy. Uh, and Mike Myers, of course, you know, uh, is making a different kind of personal film, which is the star vehicle, uh, the the sketch show, you know, the the comedic. Uh, the comedian movie, you know, um, and that, you know, I think the crucial uh, difference for me is like, there's not a lot of feeling for me and like Mike Myers being romantic, you know, like that doesn't, <laughs> not at all. That yeah. doesn't hit, you know, for, for me, but, uh, but a lot of the comedy does, does hit, you know? So again, like it, it's an excuse for, uh, him to get Phil Hartman, 
in the movie, you know, to or get him, a whole yeah, bunch of to people. get a whole bunch of people, but also for him to do his shtick. Excuse me, miss. There seems to be a mistake. I believe I ordered the large cappuccino. Hello! You know, and obviously, like, your mileage will vary if you don't like Mike Myers. Like, you won't like this movie at all, you know? That, that, <laughs> that said, though, you know, part of the appeal for Mike Myers was that um, he felt he could uh, be in a movie and not have to be, like, a character the whole time. Now, in spite of that, there's plenty of moments where he is a character. And in fact, he he plays a caricature of a Scottish, you know, his Scottish father in the film. But, you know, as the central protagonist, you know, he he was like, this is an opportunity for me to not just be Wayne, you know, but to be like Mike Myers actor and and to stretch my chops and to have moments of, you know, heartache and pain and loss and learning and love and all those kinds of things. Um, but yes, it is also a movie in which that guy can't uh, resist I injecting so many things which would be, you know, I think much more emblematic of ultimately where his career, you know, if you had to sum up his career and his persona, like it is still like a Mike Myers movie. And again, I think, like you said, that's a really good way of putting it. Like that's still personal filmmaking. And in, you know, in yeah. point of fact, Ryan, you know, you described the, the sort of like tumultuous experience for Alice Wu, this film also had a very troubled production because of that. Because, you know, the script began uh, as one thing. And, you know, once Michael, once, once Mike Myers got it, to, not Michael Myers, but once Mike, I, I always do that, dude. Once, I suppose that is his name. It is yeah. his name, yes. But once Mike Myers signed on, uh, yeah. He basically, over, yeah. yeah, he basically rewrote most of the script. I mean, you know, one of the biggest things was uh, Robbie Fox, who who wrote the screenplay, who sold the screenplay. You know, he had pitched it as like you know Annie Hall meets Suspicion. That was like his vision. You know, Annie Hall meets Hitchcock's Suspicion, yeah. and it was originally set in New York, and it was going to be like a very like you know stereotypical. Uh, Jewish character, Jewish American character. And in fact, I don't know if you either, either of you saw this, but Woody Allen was attached for three weeks to play. Three weeks. For three weeks, <laughs> Woody Allen was like on board and they were going to make this thing like New York and, and the character's name was going to be like, you know, Charles Greenberg or something like that, you know, and, and it was going to be fucking Woody Allen like vehicle. Wow. Uh, yeah. And then when Mike Myers jumped on board, it went from being like New York Jews to San Francisco Scots, I guess, for some <laughs> reason, you know, <laughs> but yeah, I mean like the, the screenwriter had, had a, a, a ton of issues with, you know, essentially what he felt kind of became Mike Myers movie more than, than his, and certainly more than the director, Thomas Schlamm, who really is kind of a non-entity in this whole process. No, yeah, sleep at the wheel, without a doubt. I had a feeling that a lot of that stuff was injected because of Mike Myers' presence. Um, I mean, I guess I didn't actually know that the genesis of it wasn't originally with him in mind, and that speaks to the way the film feels, 
because it does feel like it's a platform to him for him to do like a lot of his shtick. I mean, we have the proto fat bastard yeah. in this. This like, is a dry run for Austin Powers. I kept thinking, you know, he's like developing that. Oh, and not just not just that. Um, I don't know. I mean, I haven't watched it, but. In that character, his father, Stuart McKenzie, the 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 cartoonish Scotsman, um, there's like a scene where he explains this this grand cabal, this conspiracy that sort of like, you know, this this Illuminati-esque group that controls the world. And he he tells, you know, Anthony LaPaglia's character, Tony, about the Pentaveret. Look at him. He's giving Tony all that Lyndon H. Lush rubbish again. Well, it's a well-known fact, Sonny Jim, that there's a secret society of the five wealthiest people in the world, known as the Pentaveret, who run everything in the world, including the newspapers, and meet tri-annually at a secret country mansion in Colorado known as the Meadows. So who's in this Pentaveret? The Queen, the Vatican, the Gettys, the Rothschilds, I'm Colonel Sanders before he went tetsa. And that is Mike Myers' latest Netflix, you know, limited series, oh, right. The Pentaveret. Yeah. This is the movie where it was also like dry ran, I guess you could yeah. say. He introduces the concept. This film, to me, looking at it now, is is just an insane 90s relic. Oh, yeah. Like from the the soundtrack which is all this like jangle pop and like proto shoegaze yeah dude like the boo radley's on the soundtrack and i know they like pumped this soundtrack you know of course trying to trying to sell the movie and all that but like it really does without mike myers it's sort of like trying to do like singles you know uh, like capitalizing on this kind of like it's the 90s like alternative culture yeah. but like you know what goes on in this film is is just like the most baffling uh, sort of co- like concept of a, of a milieu and a character right this this idea that he is he's a again is that his job? You dude, know, that's dude. what I was wondering too. I was going to ask. This is that, the question. You know, like you know, obviously, saving face makes it very clear. She's a surgeon. We see her at oh, yeah. work. We see how the day to day of her labor affects the way she's able to balance and manage her relationships. And then there's Mike Myers, seemingly just having all the time in the world during the day to visit the butcher shop and volunteer and have fun and then also just yeah do poetry in the evening yeah, I never, do literally like 45 <laughs> seconds of a poem in a, in, in a coffee <laughs> yeah. shop uh, outside of Jack Kerouac Alley you right. know <laughs> ladies and gentlemen let's hear it for our own Mr. Charlie McKenzie I mean, dude, there's a moment later you 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 don't really like go into his like like the workings, the inner workings of his life or his world too much. I mean, you meet his family, you meet his friends and that sort of thing. But like there's a moment there's there's one there's like one scene where we go into his apartment and he has like 
a a penthouse apartment. Did you catch? Did you clock his fucking apartment? It's like this um, um, incredible penthouse apartment, like overlooking San Francisco. He has that like roof deck where he's just like lounging and writing poems. And I, it was at that point when I turned to Hillary my girlfriend, and I was like, what the fuck does this guy do? And again, talk about a relic, right? This is like San Francisco in the 90s, right? But like, imagine what that apartment costs in 2023. Imagine 30 years later what these these San Francisco locales cost. You can't get by on, you know, maybe getting a a share of like the tip money at the coffee shop <laughs> for your for your poems every night no. to, to exist the way that he does. I mean, Jesus, yeah. There, there's never any mention of what his job is. He is defined as a poet. Like, yeah, that again, like in this movie's world, he's a he's a full time beat poet who performs for thirty seconds, uh, and it it brought to mind, you know, again the nineties were insane. Uh, in the film Gridlocked, uh, which I like quite a bit, uh, sort of like the backstory is like Tupac and Tim Roth are, are in like a spoken word jazz trio. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's like, what is going on in the 90s where this, you know, like... This is this is proliferating in movies. Dude, you, know? you know, grunge was in. You know, <laughs> Gen X is riding high. Yeah, yeah. everybody's living the high. Dark off the dark side. Hog. This is the dark side of Gen X for I, sure. Clinton's you know? in Clinton's in office, dude. We got a surplus for the first time. I can't. I do. Yeah, it is just such a relic. You're it's, right. Yeah, it's it's very funny. I mean, it's just it makes no fucking sense. Um, but that's fine, you know, because that's not what this is about. No, and it's funny you mentioning the relic because you know my uh, the film I pick, Saving Face, kind of is too in certain respects. It really does evoke that you know Sony Pictures classic or oh, like yeah. Searchlight early two thousands Sundance darling type yeah. movie playing for two weeks at the landmark century cinema you know it. absolutely yes and yet though it's like better than that right yes, like I to me so. at least in the way it's constructed uh and i don't want to make like dumb cultural assumptions but like alice Wu's approach to me seems more like asian cinema than american indie cinema you know the mm -hmm. way she sets up tableaus and the way the film is very patient uh it reminds me of you know taiwanese filmmakers it doesn't remind me of uh early 2000s indie filmmakers. No, you know? I mean, yeah, the, it's, I think it's fair to even just think about the comparison, whether intentional or not, because it was just a few years later, but it, yeah, it feels like the beginning of Yee Yee, you know, in certain respects, like this big gathering. And it, I was almost even wondering if one of the jokes where they mentioned like, oh, they're running out of crab and the food's not very good. And the daughter, Will, says to her mom, like, let's go to KFC. Let's get out of here. It made me think about, yeah, let's bail on the wedding of Yee Yee and go to McDonald's, you know? Yeah. But there is something to it. It's a great way of like starting everything off because it's, everyone feels like a real character. And so like that moving camera throughout the room doesn't just feel like a general low key early 2000s indie film. There's there's broader concerns and there's more of a significant approach to family and like a community. Yeah. And also and also like in it's just like formal construction as well. I mean, there's there's some really like thoughtful approaches, even if they can be 
you know, very, uh, and I'm not trying to like, you know, shit on it, but even if they can be very like kind of telegraphed, like very like conscious choices about, oh, look, now they're separated by this object in the middle of the room, you know, like, yeah. especially with space, you know, even so that, that stuff can just really kind of like hit you over the head with a hammer as being like a very like filmmaker's choice, right? It's like by comparison, uh, so many of the, the, the moments in So I Married an Axe Murder, it's like there's like no composition whatsoever. <laughs> and, and in fact, I, I, again, I was doing research when I found out it was like there was so much turmoil. But apparently, like Thomas Schlamm, I'm calling him Schlamm. I feel bad. You know, the director, right? I like Schlamme. Schlamme, yeah. We'll be Schlamme. It sounds a little bit, we'll, we'll, we'll give him a little bit, we'll, we'll put some stank on it for him, you know? Yeah. Um, he, you know, he had a design for this film that was apparently very elaborate, you know, visually speaking. And, and Mike Myers, like, protested, like, viciously on set. Anytime they said uh, Thomas Schlamet got out dolly tracks, Mike Myers would, like, refuse to show up on set. Like, he would, like, throw temper tantrums because Mike Myers was like... That's not comedy. Comedy's not on tracks. Like we just set up the scene and you you let us go. And like he wanted to improv a lot. And so he was constantly like resisting, like violently against like, you know, mise en scène essentially. You know, because he's like, <laughs> yeah. just film me goofing around and and we'll get it. That's what we're all here for. So apparently, like uh it became so much more loose just simply because. Myers was was you know thinking he was making like Chaplin more than right. than he was making Hitchcock right I guess that yeah that's that's what you get when you work with Schlamme because I was thinking about the visual style of this movie even compared to Wayne's World you know maybe Mike Myers needs someone like Penelope Spheris to kind of boss him around a little bit because yeah well and she had her own battles with him like she's talked about that for yeah. sure but I mean revisiting that movie that movie has visual ideas yeah. fun ideas visual comedy amongst all the other like improving and goofy lines this movie <laughs> you know again the camera you just gotta wonder who was who was using it so you the, know? yeah we could call it like uh, yeah like sketch on set yeah you know? because again yeah, like I, I would I would argue, right? It's like on a certain level, though, Myers uh, Myers gets vindicated or bailed out by virtue of having so many amazing performers who are able to pop up and make the scene really just simply about what they're doing and how they're performing. And like, you know, I think that's part of the reason why for a lot of people, the film feels very disjointed because it is these these just it's it is like a, a parade of moments where you know these 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 great actors will sh and comedians will show up and just sort of like have an opportunity to do some shtick for a second and it's totally a break in most cases from the actual romantic comedy plot and i think again for me that's part of the reason why i enjoy the movie so much because i'm like the the, the love stuff is i'm always like yeah, yeah 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 i get it you know the meet cute and like the typical romantic comedy thing the meet cute and then they're in the honeymoon phase everything's going well and then something's gonna happen and it's gonna be in oh doubt for a little while but then inevitably they'll come back together right. i always feel like that's so again it's like the tried and tested formula of so many romantic comedies that in this movie, like, God damn it, I want more of 
uh, Anthony Paglia as, as the like wannabe Serpico and, and Alan Arkin as his like touchy feely sensitive police captain, dude, that shit is honestly probably whenever I think of this movie immediately like where I go. Yeah. I mean, well you even mentioning that like it's playing with the tried and true formula of the romantic comedy. That's one of the things that was making me laugh so much throughout because when it is the honeymoon phase, when it is even just the meet cute phase, meet cute, yeah, literally meet cute, exactly. Literally. Yeah, it's it. I never bought into that romance, and I think that was funny. Like yeah. that was something I enjoyed while watching the movie because the idea of Mike Myers as a romantic lead is like just hilarious in general. And then watching how it plays out, I think it could have been interesting had the film actually made you feel that electrifying feeling of falling in love and have the rug pulled on from under you when you started to think that she was a serial killer. But it's so abstract and it's like sketch comedy stylings that, you know, that relationship never feels like it's actually this lovely well, You thing. would need real filmmaking to make the audience <laughs> feel like that. Exactly. You know? And that's the thing with Saving Face. I mean... Yeah, I don't doubt the romance for a second when I was watching it. I was completely caught up in it. When they have their first sensual encounter, again, we're talking about the difference between this poet who supposedly has all this money and someone who is like a working professional in Saving Face. That first meet-cute encounter, um, or at least one of the first where they have a real actual conversation. Is that how you're going to eat? Yeah. should eat better. How about this one? It's packed with peanuts. And a lot of other satisfying carcinogens. Sometimes your body knows what you really want. Snack, the snack cute. Shit. Yeah, snack you. <laughs> it's a yeah. It's like in in a stairwell in the hospital at the vending machine, and the way that they play off each other, you know, it has that secret sauce of the romantic comedy. You know, you're like, I'm falling in love as well. This is very pleasant. Never in so I married an axe murderer was I like hopeful for the two of them to really sync up and just like tie the knot. You know? I, I think. I think again. <laughs> For me, it's 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 because, you know, when I reflect on the idea of like romantic comedies, um, I think the really great ones, um, they they do kind of share a certain characteristic, and that is that they are essentially character studies. And in order for us to understand the dynamics of two people falling in love, and you know, what might be certain obstacles, what, what might be the things getting in their way, their failures. It's like, you've got to take time to get to actually know who these people are, how they tick their insecurities, you know, and, and we really come to know them. And that's then how we, we have a stake in it, right? It's like, these are our friends and, and, oh, we want them to be together, you know, but So I Married an Axe Murderer is a caricature study more than right. anything you know it's it's quite the opposite of that we we don't really get into the the inner life of of really any of of these people whereas again in in saving face uh so many of the characters even the the side characters by the end we we come to really feel 
uh, are are very like lived in that these are people. And again, maybe that's because it's coming out of her experiences and people she actually knows and her family. Whereas, yeah, Mike Myers is just kind of throwing a bunch of shtick at the wall and and seeing what lands and and what works and what doesn't. And at the end of the day, if it doesn't really work, oh, no big deal. I mean, this is an SNL guy, right? It's like, man, that's that typical sketch comedy SNL shit of being like, well, they can't all hit, right? But if we can throw enough at them, then, and we can have enough to do work than the ones that maybe don't work, it's, it's, it all works out in the ending. You know? Well, think about the difference even between both films attempting to present a cultural community to varying degrees <laughs> oh, because <God>. in, <laughs> in So I Married an Ex-Murderer were for some reason dealing with the Scots. Yeah, there's apparently a, a, a massive like Scottish expatriate community like deeply embedded within yeah. San Francisco. In, like a $3 million home or whatever. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, think about how the way they interact with that is just Mike Myers going to the butcher shop and ordering haggis and being like, I don't really like haggis, you know, and it's like just a dead end joke that goes nowhere and then it's his father wearing boxers that have the same like print as a kilt you know and then just even right off the bat at the beginning of saving face one of my favorite moments in the whole film when will gets dragged into this party and she's you know mingling with people and meeting everybody and her attire is not extremely feminine right she's wearing a button-up shirt she's wearing some trousers and she's called out on it by some of the people you know something that would you know traditionally be called like a very tomboyish appearance and her mother says like i can't believe you know she would wear this this evening and one of the older women mentions ah no it's very respectable it reminds me of the types of things i would wear during the revolution back home oh my god dude grandma i loved yeah. that i loved grandma like she just kept referencing like the war in so many of her interactions mm-hmm. with people and again i was trying to like figure out like the 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 deeper implication there was that that she was like fighting on the side of like the Maoists or was she fighting with the nationalists in either case, uh, she was fighting. Like the, the, the idea there is that she was a fighter, not her husband. Right. No. Yeah. She really loved that sturdy and practical revolution attire, which I thought was like a great read on her outfit. Yeah, and that's, you know, for Saving Face, I think that's it. Like a lot of romantic comedies, it uses that setup to then. It's like, well, what's the conflict? Well, it's their background, their family. Generations. Yeah, the generational conflict between, you know, parents and their children. And that's like very much at play here. But it is very like, yeah, you get the dynamic immediately when you're in that, you know, at that party and there's like the the women gossiping and then it just cuts to, you know, the husbands and it's just like <laughs> these guys the just, scratchers. just slurping noodles, <laughs> you know, silently. Yeah. Uh, those guys are, you know, like, again, it's a very like welcoming way into this little community. Yeah, that opening sequence has maybe my favorite, one of my favorite interrupted speeches I've ever seen in a film where a man like takes the stage, grabs the microphone. I can't remember if it was grandpa or not. It is, yeah. He, it is, yeah. And he, he says something like, as the lazy t- 
toads of the summer like <laughs> fall asleep to the crackling leaves of autumn our minds turn to the demise of our children's education <laughs> and then the sound shifts and we get the subjective perspective of will uh, she's like falling in love with vivian from across the room but all I could think about was where was that going during this celebration? Like yeah. thinking about the changing of the seasons, reminding us of our children's demise in education. No clue where that was just headed. A, yeah, just another grumpy conservative grandfather. Because I mean, that's also <laughs> like the joke, you know, in the film itself is like Wilhelmina is an accomplished surgeon, and Vivian is a very accomplished dancer. They're like the perfect children, other than of course they're gay, right? Uh, and so like that element is really funny to me because again this you know this film does have that corny wish fulfillment aspect of a romantic comedy i mean like these women are like you know besides their emotional and interpersonal lives like they're perfect yeah like it's like yeah. oh am i gonna go you know be in the best ballet of all time uh am i gonna be a you know the head surgeon at 30 like yes and yes you know like <laughs> Whereas in So I Married an Axe Murderer, you know, they're totally fine languishing with these dead end, basically. Like, what? I mean, I guess she, it's it's kind of inverted because, like, she has, let's be honest, like, a much more, like, productive and practical job. Uh, Harriet does. She's a butcher. She's actually providing a useful service for the people of her neighborhood in San Francisco. Whereas, like, yeah, he's just reciting bad poems, really like laughably like bad oh, yeah. poems. <laughs> and, and apparently he's like a celebrity. Yeah. The, the, that's the idea there, right? Is that he is like a celebrity in the San Francisco yeah. poetry scene. And I mean, uh, for, for folks who haven't seen the movie, right? I mean, like the, the poems that he reads with, with the amount of fanfare that's sort of like given to the idea of him reciting, like, oh, what are you doing? What do you got for us tonight? It's also every week or night or whenever he goes there, it's basically the same poem, yeah. but with a slight variation on it, you know, yeah. and we, yeah. we get treated to it like three or four times throughout the movie. Woman. Whoa, man. Whoa, man. We had just sex. Is she Mrs. X? I had to run for my life. And again, something funny I read about the production, I don't know if either of you guys read this, was that apparently, like, Myers just, like, could not nail it. And he kept, like, flubbing it or screwing it up or missing the, the like, no the music rhythm. cues. They said that the shoot for him doing that, I mean, what, I'd say it's like a 20-second poem right it's it's so short they said it was they said it was a 14 hour day and people were like starting to like revolt like people were yelling at him like wow. <laughs> which and somebody i read that was on it was like i'm haunted to this day by his woman poem that he recites throughout the movie she's like some nights i will like i will hear it in my yeah. sleep <laughs> yeah i mean i think they're funny like yeah. as as mike myers stick i think yes. they're funny but like yeah they're objectively awful yeah, i mean yeah. like <laughs> 
Yeah, and I know that that's part of the joke. You know? Yeah, I like the idea that he repeats them all the time for the fans. That as if there's a dedicated audience that is waiting to hear the next iteration of it. Like they get settled in, like to the theme song, "Woman, Woe Man, Whoa Man." You know, and they're like, "Yeah, yeah, okay, who is it this week? Let's go, let's yeah. go." And then like that is his calling card, and everyone gets really jazzed about it. Well, the most perverse thing too is that he projects an image of the literal woman. He he yeah. is is you know rapping about on the stage. Yeah. I'm like that's like a violation of their of yeah. their rights. Some of the photos <laughs> do look almost like like clandestinely yeah. captured as well. That's they they seem very like candid. Like yeah. he breaks up with some woman, then he sneaks some snaps of her, and then he puts them in his little show. You know. Yeah, and let's be real too. What kind of beat poet is best friends with a cop? He's a yeah, weird yeah. guy. B- big, he, good question. Good his, question. like, the things he does, I mean, there's, when he decides that he's, like, well, not decides, when he starts, like, falling in love with Harriet and is hanging out at the butcher shop and decides to spend the day working at the butcher shop with her, right, we get a little montage of Mike Myers goofing off, coming up with new goofy things he could be doing in the butcher shop. He's massaging the meat, he's this and that. But even one of his asides is he puts a bunch of the meat like the dangling raw meat in his in his wrist in his shirt and acts as if he's been gored and just runs up to a pair of old ladies and it's like dear god like mother help me yeah. oh no and i'm like what a cruel and crazy thing to do <laughs> just some strangers you yeah. know it'd be one thing if he was doing that to harriet and it's like oh they have a similar sensibility and they're falling in love he was doing that for no one he was just doing that to upset those for ladies us. Yeah. And, for us, yeah. and that's not and, that, and that's not like the worst part about it again the the i got fascinated reading about like the all the the problems on this set when they were doing that particular scene where he's doing the shtick he's improving. like i mean that's just like he was like improving again like so many of these moments of him being like just get me in there and and give me the props and I'll, i'll do funny shit and apparently like he was targeting nancy travis a lot during the the shoot and trying to make her laugh and and you know trying to like be very genuine right like i'm gonna make her laugh while we're we're working we're doing this that she like screwed up she was like distracted by him and she cut off the tip of one of her fingers whoa during that scene, during that shoot, and she had to go to a hospital to get her finger surgically reattached because Mike Myers was doing his his goofy, wild, manic Mike Myers stuff so well that he distracted her and she sliced off the tip of her finger. Wow. Yeah. That stinks. <laughs> <laughs> the guy's a menace, you know? He's he a is. Menace. He is. But you know what? I will say it, like... There are some other like kind of moments where you do like get that sense that that like, yeah, you know, um, they were having a lot of fun in these moments on the film. And I think that kind of shows in a lot of cases. Anthony LaPaglia, if you notice in the scene where he is basically talking to Mike Myers as the Stuart, the Scottish father, like LaPaglia is like losing it, just breaking character and just cracking up throughout it. Like Mike Myers would just sit down with him. And again, he would be like, just run the camera and I'm just going to riff here. And, and LaPaglia said like, dude, I, I just was like losing it. Like I could not keep it together. Uh, and, and again, like you said, Marsh, your, your mileage will vary depending on 
whether or not you enjoy Mike Myers or find him amusing. I know there's plenty of people that, that don't, but... Um, I, I love Mike Myers. I When I was in elementary school, we had to do like a, a biography presentation of just someone. It could be... I think the intention was that it would be like a historical figure, you know, not just a contemporary actor. But the idea was that we had to like come dressed up as this person when we did the presentation. And I did my presentation in character as Austin Powers about the life of Mike Myers and <laughs> talked about like his his journey uh, creatively and his like personal life, like anything I could find on the internet about Mike Myers. And I did this while wearing an Austin Powers outfit and fake teeth, like shitty fake teeth oh, that you get at like a Halloween store. No. I got the photo somewhere. I think I even have the full presentation. I probably should have dug it out so I could have read it, but yeah, maybe, maybe we can share that picture <laughs> for the fans. <laughs> yeah, wow. baby is right. <laughs> yeah. Now, oh, I man. was a big Mike Myers guy, and I, you know, I will say I was so certain I had seen this before, and I don't think I did. Um, oh, wow. Nothing rang any bell, so it was nice to return to Mike Myers studies for me. Yeah. And it made me think of you, uh, because, you know, we were ragging on the mise-en-scene, but one of my favorite jokes in the film is one of production design. When they cut to the Mackenzie home and you see uh, the Scottish hall of fame (laughs) on the wall. And as the camera like pans down, you see, Sean Connery, Bond, Blur, you oh, know, yeah. Jackie Stewart, you know, like that, that was cracking me up. You know, I think like for me, the, the Scottish stuff is a mixed bag. I think some of it's very funny and I think some of it is ill-advised, you know, uh, I do, I do like his parents, you know, being these like proto QAnon, uh, sort of like, uh, <laughs> alternative news people, you know, who like take the weekly world news as gospel. Uh, that's a, that was a fun little like treat in retrospect you know i, like I think that. so we, sh- we should talk about then the parents are just the parent in in saving face because i feel like we haven't placed as much importance on her quite yet um but i was really taken by joan chen in this movie i mean i'm always taken by joan chen i you can't get enough of joan chen Come on, but, who isn't taken by joan chen yeah but her performance as the mother is is really fantastic in this movie. I love when we first see her showing up to her daughter's apartment right after she knows she's pregnant, has been dealing with all of this. She's asleep on the stoops, you know, with a bunch of Charmin Ultra. You know, she's asleep on a big package of groceries that she's brought over because, daughter, I'm moving in. Uh, I'm going to be spending some time with you. But her depiction of a woman suffering a great deal of loneliness because of some of the traditional and conservative barriers that have been like ingrained in in her upbringing and then also the way that she's conducted her own life I thought was extremely touching because it is really sad when she's spending all this time at home and you realize how lonely she is and how much she cares and loves spending time with her daughter but doesn't exactly know how to talk about it or express that like I love when she goes to the video store and this like starts a thread of her just spending all this time becoming enraptured with you know, fake connections, watching tapes of dramas and becoming totally engaged with every moment of it with while refusing to engage with the relationships in her own life. 
Well, yeah, and watching porn, too. I mean. Well, yeah, that, too. Yeah, well, I was going to say, because I love the scene when she goes to the video store. One, yes. because she sees, you know, she asks for some Chinese movies, and the guy directs her to a shelf, uh, one of which, of course, is The Last Emperor. Haha, Very funny. Joan Chen's in that movie. And then it's the Joy Luck Club, and then it's just immediately erotica, which yeah. is, you know, a very good joke about an American video store in mm-hmm. 2004, you know? Yeah, it's like the two big hits and then like, yeah, the Asian exploitation erotica that she does end up taking home with her. <laughs> yes. Although they never say what, like, the soap she's watching, do they? Because that becomes, like, a major thread throughout the film is sort of implied Chinese soap opera. Yeah. Uh, and that sort of, like, you know, wins over uh, not only her and her daughter, but also their neighbor as well, who is uh, yeah. getting in on the, the soap action at one point. I, I generally really like the neighbor, but I will say when we were talking about this being a relic, any time there was a scene of Wilhelmina like smoking on the roof with her neighbor, that was when the film was most explicitly like this is like some Sundance stuff. Yes. You know, yeah. the most Sony Pictures classic scenes in the film all shot on the same day. Her and her like neighbor smoking cigs. I'm like, I don't I don't I know don't about know. this. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm little, glad you had the yeah. same reaction. Oh, 100%. Because yeah. so much of the movie rings so true, and those moments felt like a fake movie yeah. compared to the rest of the movie. 100%. But yeah, I mean, really, you, you're right. For me, this movie, and and I, I again, I think that like the, the central characters, like, you know, Will and, and Vivian, like they do a, a, a pretty good job um, at, you know, again, getting us invested in like them as people, them as humans. But for me, this movie 100% is like the Joan Chen show. And yeah. it is again, like a, a, another reminder of just like what, uh, what a presence she can have and what she can do with silence without words. Because I mean, also, you know, we should point out that like this movie is, is, I would even say like almost more than half like subtitled uh and it's like mm-hmm. in Mandarin and her character uh especially like I I think it's it's never directly like explained to us but she doesn't seem to speak English certain certainly not with any not willfully not willfully yeah. and not with any like yeah. fluency um and so there's also this sort of like this this communicative Barrier, you know, you've mentioned some of the other barriers that she has, but there's also this like, like language barrier that that she struggles with now outside of her predominantly uh, Chinese and Chinese American community of of flushing, but like living with her daughter now in a neighborhood that that is just filled with Americans and and struggling in that regard. But yes, her gradual sort of um, like awakening that this movie presents to us uh, was was to me like just again so much more like moving and powerful and and uh, and like paced um, so naturally that that I I just like was 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 totally blown away. I mean, where she starts and where she ends up, um, it, it isn't through. I mean, there are some like dramatic moments, but but it's more through like small exchanges, small moments of like reflection in her interactions with other people that seem to 
um, like elevate her, push her forward, give her something to, to try differently. I mean, when she first meets the roommate, I was like taken aback by that because when she's like sitting down to dinner with her daughter and her, her African, African American roommate, uh, neighbor, I mean, she's yeah. neighbor. Yeah. Neighbor. She's just saying, flat out just like racist shit in bad stuff. <laughs> like I yeah. mean, horrible horrible vile things uh and and yes like even in that relationship she will start to think about it differently and and obviously part of that is her lack of exposure to any other world to any other ethnicities than than those she had spent her time with before. But like I was like, holy fuck, when she was saying all that shit about soy sauce and 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 skin color, like my gosh. Yeah, saying she didn't want to like have too much soy sauce because it could affect the tone of her unborn baby's skin. You know, yeah, I think like that that was like a very telling moment into the prejudices that she's like held on to because of the way she's raised but then also of course like the capability for change and and alice Wu, you know says that it's not outwardly autobiographical but you know when you read about alice's experience coming out to her mother and how her mother flat out had a very similar reaction to joan chen in the film when when the coming out scene happens late in it which was alice Wu's mother said she's like i don't know why you would ever say something like that to me and i I don't want to speak to you again and they didn't speak to each other for two years but they did reconnect and then they you know they rekindled that bond and it it grew and it became it's a huge important part of her life in the interim between saving face and then her most recent film which came out i think a year or two ago much of that was spent taking care of her ill mother and this film is clearly a love letter to her of showing how she grew and how their relationship grew, you know? And just Joan Chen was like the perfect casting decision (laughs) you can make here because she just totally sells it. And that's part of the design as well. You know, it's it does a good job of showing you that she does come from this really like hermetic universe, right? The like Flushing Queens, Chinatown, like she lives with, you know, Joan Chen's character is 48 and she still lives with her parents, you know? Uh, And that's such a big part of it where, uh, you know, opposites attract, right? Because Vivian's family, we get their backstory. Her her mother was basically like excommunicated from the Chinese community for being, I think, like a single mother. I forget the specifics, but um, Mm -hmm. she makes that point where it's like, yeah, they they moved out of the hood, you know, and and Vivian. Well, I think the idea is her mother also like chose to break free. That she divorced wasn't oh, that right. the story? Yeah, yeah, she yeah. divorced the father, and because she chose to do that, she was then like, "You're you're you are dead to us," essentially, right? Right, exactly, and that of course you know filters through down to Vivian being a much more open cosmopolitan kind of person. And she's also the daughter of Will's, bo- Will's boss, yeah. the surgeon. Yeah. That's the also yeah. part the of it. Surgery, so they yeah. don't really develop that tension, but like, it, you know, there's a scene or two where, you know, he factors prominently, but it's like, oh yeah, she's also like, yeah, having this secret relationship with her boss's daughter. Right. You know? and, and, and the important part being that, because of those two different, I think, relationships with their their mothers, particularly, you know, 
Will is so much more afraid than Vivian is. Like she discovers Vivian is open uh, to her mother about her sexuality and her mother has has accepted that. Um, and and Will is just like, I can't even imagine, right? And Will is so much more obviously, you know, for professional reasons, like afraid of Wilhelmina's dad or of Vivian's dad than, than Vivian is. Vivian's like, you know, what's the big deal? And, and again, in the romantic comedy formulas we've been talking about, this is the tension, right? They seem like such mm-hmm. a great couple, but the issue is for our central character that they have certain obstacles preventing them from being with this wonderful person who's right there in front of them. And Vivian starts to say, look, like, you know, you, you have to make a decision here. Like we can't just do this in secret. We can't live in, in secrecy from, from everyone. You know, that's, that's her thing. So, um, is, is this all we are? Hmm? Just starting to feel like we're having an illicit affair. We never do anything. We never see anyone. I love holding up with you, but... As you pointed out, So I Married an Ex-Murderer also has that kind of obstacle, right? Uh, Charlie is a guy that is terrified of commitment and that's his thing right because yes again once he starts to get close to nancy travis it's like oh he's gonna pull away from the commitment right he's gonna back off now again in this story it's because he suspects that she might be a serial killer right but it's still there you know both films do have again those same kinds of rhythms the same kinds of flows uh, again i i think what's what's interesting was that in in the original conception for so i married an axe murder as well the idea the central idea for the screenwriter was that she actually was a serial killer yeah and so th- the joke was supposed to be that He's he's this again similar like paranoid guy and everyone's like dude you're just you're just paranoid you're nitpicky you just keep throwing away all these good women but this was supposed to be the actual moment when he was correct in his suspicions and his paranoia but of course in this film again that's just something that they totally like basically flipped around or got rid of I guess you could say that I mean that that's exactly what I was thinking um i'm glad you confirmed it because i just kept thinking like they just missed the mark here she should have been the serial killer that's clearly what is being set up if he has if he's taking issues with all of these different things about women all these small things that he can't get over the joke of this movie should be he's forced to get over the fact that she's a serial killer because it's gone on long enough and the movie like doesn't hold on to that you know and that would be the the true Hitchcock approach, Andy, right. you know, and this mm. film even goes so far as to have a sort of homage to suspicion oh, yeah. when she brings him the shake yeah. that he thinks is poisoned, you know. But I think in that regard, yeah, maybe would have been, uh, a, you know, a, a better decision to go there. But I can see already that that's like not uh, the commercial Mike Myers comedy route to go you know like and i mean again i think it also explains like if you go that route it then also explains 
the presence of so many of those supporting characters and their incompetence or their naivete or yeah. their inability mm-hmm. to like put two and two together and their their reluctance to sort of like to 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 see what he sees you know cuz like in this regard like tony anthony lapaglia's character the cop like he's 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 like supposed to be like a buffoon but he then kind of becomes like a heroic figure in the movie because it isn't supposed to be that tension of like being like, no, he's an idiot cop and he cannot see that she's a serial killer. So everything gets very kind of muddy and, and sort of twisted. And, and then again, I think um, loses that, that balance. Um, and, and again, to, to your point with Hitchcock, like Hitchcock would like right away, let us know. Yeah, she is a fucking serial killer. So that we could writhe with him in those moments of people not believing him. And that is the tension of the movie, is all of us knowing something that the rest of the world doesn't. But in this case, it's supposed to be that, like, the the, the world knows something, you know, they, they see it correctly and he sees it incorrectly because it's a it's a character flaw of his. But, yeah, it's it's it's... It's like it's just like right on the fence where between those two kind of worlds. Yeah. It's funny that both movies have really significant plants for what ends up happening. Like I knew right away in So I Married an Ex-Murderer. And again, I thought I'd seen it before, but I'm almost positive I haven't. So maybe this is my subconscious that cued me in. But the moment you meet the sister played by Amanda Plummer. Oh, I'm like, yeah. oh, it's her. She's the killer. She's <laughs> it's being, Amanda she's being fucking a... Plummer. Come on. And then also in Saving Face, I think it's twice, pretty early in the film, they kind of repeatedly mention, oh, grandma, she's going to outlive us all. <laughs> I was like, okay. The, the, the big moment in this is grandma's going to die, and that's going to be like a huge, you know, coming together of everyone, and that is eventually what, what happens. But it is funny that you know, holding on to that romantic comedy structure, there is like a key thing presented early on that, you know, seems innocent, but will come into play much later on. Again, just some more like backstory on all this stuff. Uh, like Ebert, we've, we've, we've ripped on Ebert a lot on this, on this pod, but in, 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 I think this case, uh, he's a little bit on, on point with his take on the film, which is where he says like, it's basically just like an okay movie. Uh, but he's like, but inside there, there's actually a really great movie, like screaming to get out, you know? And again, I think it goes back to that original conception of the film and some of the ideas that they had at a certain point. Also in the casting, Sharon Stone was attached to play the Nancy Travis role. And Sharon Stone's idea was like, um, Sharon Stone's like, I'll do it, but I also play the sister. Um, and again, for his like paranoia and his confusion, because they kind of have that joke of, uh, of him, like, you know, he spends the night with... Harriet with Nancy Travis character. Then he wakes up in the morning, you know, in her apartment and he sees the silhouette of a woman taking a shower and he's like, Oh, and he does that thing. He goes in, he opens the door. It is not Nancy Travis. It's Amanda Plummer. Ah, and he goes out and then he has this weird, funny, awkward breakfast with her. But again, in my mind, I kept thinking like, now imagine if it is her identical twin sister, like that extra sort of, uh, uh, again, like suspicion and paranoia and, and unease he would be constantly feeling, wondering even, am I talking even to the right 
person. But apparently the studio was just like to Sharon Stone, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not, we're not, we're not going to go that route anymore or uh-huh. whatever. And then Sharon Stone was like, well, then fine, I'm out. This is just, this is, <laughs> this isn't very good. This isn't very interesting, you know? That awkward breakfast had my favorite line in the whole movie when Mike, Mike Myers sitting very stoic mentions I care for Applejacks a great deal. Um, <laughs> because I, I do too. And have had Applejacks like for the th- three days leading up to watching So I Married an Ex-Murderer. So that like hit for me. I'm yeah. like a big Applejacks guy. But I like the idea of a secret movie within the movie because I kept thinking there was also a secret movie inside of Saving Face. However, I like that we don't see it because I think it's really fun. And that is the actual relationship Joan Chen should be having or wants to be having that she's unable to with, um, I mean, I guess it's just jumping head ridiculously, but who is revealed to be little you, who is the, the, the son of old you. And throughout the film, little you is giving these herbs to Wilhelmina as she's like coming home from work. And he's always like, okay, this is good for this, or these herbs are going to help you find a husband. And then also here's some stuff for your mother. This is going to help with morning sickness and things like that. And he's like passing messages to Joan Chen, you know, cause they're actually, they're actually in love. But I love that it almost feels like that's the secret romantic comedy behind the scenes in the movie. Yeah of these two lovers that are trying to connect and has a very romantic comedy type exchanging of information, the bags of herbs, you know? Well, I guess in that regard, you know, it is something that as a, like a double feature, like these, both of these movies do have kind of embedded within them, which is a sort of like uh, a mystery element that, that is meant to sort of run throughout because yes, we are, even if the movie, even if Saving Grace isn't constantly like shoving it in our face, I mean, from Pretty much the minute we discover that she's pregnant, we are asking, who's the father, right? And it does sort of run, like you said, as like this undercurrent where we keep coming back to it going like, when are we going to find out who is it? And it bubbles up as gossip, you know, like in the hair salon or at the parties, some of the ladies sort of bring it up, you know, And, and we're, you know, we're given clues that sort of lead us to to old you, not little you, because the age gap is significant. Right. Uh-huh. Um, a red herring, just yes. like so I married an axe murderer. That's right. <laughs> it's true. It's and true. I do want to mention, you know, speaking of the, the films within the films, there is a, a, a stretch of Saving Face, which is a Joan Chen datathon. Uh, and yes. that's, uh, you know, that was v- a very interesting sort of part of the film because so much of so much of the movie, Joan Chen is just like a hot fucking mess. I mean, she's been like kicked out of her dad's house. She's pregnant. She can't be with the father. There's all this pain. There's all this sadness. She's dealing with her, her daughter. Uh, eventually they're like, well, you know, this this kid needs a needs a father mom you know and and they start setting her up with all these different guys and we get a little like window into these different sort of like i guess stereotypes of of different you know like chinese american guys it almost becomes kind of like in that moment i i was thinking of like wong kar wise like 90s shit you know like it had that kind of because it's it it suddenly becomes a little disjointed then there's it's it's not necessarily linear it's kind of like over 
overlapping and cross-cutting or jump-cutting throughout yeah. these various It's like a standalone dates. musical sequence. Yeah, mm-hmm. and like yeah. weird with a bizarre kind of like tone to like the interactions. There's just like the guy who looks incredibly depressed who suddenly starts singing karaoke. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. There's one dude that's just got like warts on his legs that he's trying to showcase once he learns that Wilhelmina is a surgeon. He's like, oh, you got to check out my warts. I need some answers here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, honestly, like most of the comedy, I think, in this film does belong to like Joan Chen's journey. I mean, like, yes, there's plenty of drama there, but I think it's like her like uh, moments of like, whether it's like culture clash or or tension or just like um, going through like adolescence at 48 or something like that's I found like so many of the moments that were like uh, amusing and again also crushing Doritos on the sidewalk dude, yeah. of New York just watching know? her walk down you know, the sidewalk eating Doritos yeah it's awesome and like yeah it's not it's not broad comedy in the way that so much of of uh, so I married an axe murder is, but it's it's like a lot it's a lot more like dry and it's a lot more like subtle um, and and it's like a comedy that again seems so much more like natural out of like mm-hmm. yes let's put this person in this place with these people and like what's gonna happen and and it it's able to to sort of just build out of these interactions whereas again in so I married an axe murderer Michael Myers is just like everybody sit back. I'm going to do my thing here, you know, like just, just watch me do my shtick, you know, the situations in saving face are consistently plausible. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, again, I don't want to like fully say that I, I think that like the humor in so I married an ax murder is just like all that, because to me, there are moments you can tell that are scripted and, and the scripted moments a lot of the the more scripted moments, especially with all these side characters, I think have some like some some great gems like buried within them, you know. And and surprise, surprise, like most of those scenes are not Michael Myers like running the scene, right? Uh, like Phil Hartman at at it's Alcatraz. It's so funny every time you say Michael Myers, I like can't. Uh, dude, I it's gonna ha- it's gonna I I cannot help it, dude. I cannot help it. You know, uh, and he is kind of the shape in, in that sense. Yeah. Dangertainment alert. Yeah, dude. But, but, uh, but is, dude, Phil Hartman and Alcatraz yeah. is like amazing. And that scene to me is plausible. Just a couple of guys going to the Alcatraz tour, you know, little two princes, yeah. spin doctors, uh, dropping on the soundtrack, riding the police boat over there, you know. I mean, and you know what's again, I think funny in that scene. Because, it's, uh, yes, aside from Phil Hartman, who has a moment of, of just, like, stealing, like he does often in, in when he shows up in anything, but in it, they're talking about him because he plays, for those who haven't seen it, Phil Hartman, they go to Alcatraz on this tour, and Phil Hartman plays one of the, the former prison guards who is now a tour guard. Uh, a tour guide at Alcatraz, and he's giving them this this like really graphic uh, story about Machine Gun Kelly. Now this is something the other tour guides won't tell you. In this particular cell block, Machine Gun Kelly had what we call in the prison system a bitch. And one night, in a jealous rage, Kelly took a makeshift knife or shiv and cut out the bitch's eyes. Hey, you know another thing about Harriet I love? 
And as if this wasn't enough retribution for Kelly, the next day he and four other inmates took turns pissing into the bitch's ocular cavities. This way to the cafeteria. Anthony Lepaglia's character, Tony turns to him at a certain point is like, Vicky, Phil Hartman's character, the guard, he's like, he's the best. He's the best tour guide. And Mike Myers is like, oh, I agree. And I was like, kind of then reflecting on the fact that means they've gone to this tour multiple times. Like, it's just kind of a thing they like to do to maybe like center themselves. And again, maybe for the, the Tony cop character, that's his way of just like reminding himself of what he does. He's got to go to Alcatraz every other weekend and just, just hear the exact same tour or something. <laughs> I mean, that's a little weird, but you know, I want to just also highlight a moment in saving face that really struck a chord with me. And I, I hope it did with you both as well being mahjong heads after yeah. our experience with the great romantic comedy, uh, fat choice spirit when it's like a, a, it doubles down the pain because the first moment is Joan Chen says she's going to have this mahjong party with all the ladies. And I got so excited. I, I was like, I can't wait <laughs> to watch the Mahjong party. Like that's, you know, that sounds like a, a perfect recipe for me. And then of course we're hanging out with Will and Vivian and it's lovely and beautiful. And when she comes home, Joan Chen looks distraught and she's sad and she says, you missed the Mahjong party. And I felt the weight of that too. I was like, oh, Joan, I missed the Mahjong party. Yeah. Like I wish I was there. And then it gets even sadder because later in the film we realize there was no Mahjong party. Yeah. None of the ladies showed up. All of these fashion queens, these amazing, you know, gossipy ladies that we get to visit at the salons and all these other spots, they decided not to show up. They left her high and dry and alone. And that, you know, that hit me hard. Yeah. yeah. I think, I mean, I think you said it earlier, you know, it's, it's a, it's like a, it's a portrait of her loneliness. And like when that is reinforced at the, the failure of her to get anyone to come to the Mahjong party, but also the her sort of implying to her daughter that she did have a Mahjong party. Like, right. she's like, you missed it. You know, she didn't say no we didn't came. have yeah. it. So she's also trying to like, you know, hide the fact that she's so sad that no one came to the Mahjong. Yeah, there's a lot of sadness. I mean, it's a sad movie. There's a lot of sadness in the movie. You know, that is, of course, like balanced by the ending with a much more like hopeful and optimistic view of the future of these generational conflicts. But but most of the movie is is, yeah, it's a uh, it's a deep dive into people's failures to connect um, failures to see one another for who they they truly are. And to just admit it to yourself, you know, that's what's such a huge struggle between Will and Vivian, where unless they're having, you know, an evening together at Vivian's home, they're meeting in places like public parks to eat hot dogs, but they're never actually going out with friends. They're never seen together in public with people who might recognize them. And that's what drives Vivian so crazy because she's very open about it. As you mentioned, Andy, she talks to her mother about it. And in like the great sex scene in the movie, the mother calls and leaves a message. And that's when that's revealed because the mother's like, hey, how's it going? Hope like you and your, you know, your girlfriend are, are doing really well. And that's when Will's like, I, having this 
into Vivovin and she says, I, you know, I can't even believe, I can't wrap my head around that, that you are sharing this with your mother, you know? But I did, yeah, it's sad, but I did love all those scenes of him just like eating hot dogs in the park. Yeah, we love good hot dog representation. Hey, there's the, they eat hot dogs as well, and so I married an ex murderer. Another connection. They walk through the park. Yeah, they eat a lot of hot dogs in uh, On the Line, starring Lance Bass as well. Yeah, <laughs> just, well, if you just, think, yeah, I mean, I was going to connect that earlier, Andy, to thinking like, yeah, they're eating hot dogs on the West Coast, they're eating hot dogs on the East Coast, and they're certainly eating hot dogs on the Third Coast. You know. <laughs> Lance Bass knows, you know. Um, well, I'm glad. I'm glad all that moved you, Ryan, because you know what really moved me this week was uh, Stephen Wright as the pilot of the plane uh, that's flying. Uh, you know, Tony to uh, the honeymoon to sort of save the day. Hey, listen. How long is it going to take us to get there? Shouldn't take very long. Actually, I have no concept of time. Uh, and, then, and then he later falls asleep at the wheel of the, of the plane. And that, I mean, there's enough, co- for me, there's enough comedy in this movie to like sail through any of the weirdness and the problems. And like Stephen Wright as the pilot is one of them. Uh, and of course, the great Charles Grodin uh, in that climax as oh, well uh, is just the I grumpiest mean, motherfucker that yeah. ever lived. It's perfect, you know? Well, here, how about this? Did you guys catch this? You say you felt at home with Stephen Wright at that pilot. There was suddenly a moment where I, too, very much felt at home while watching So I Married an Axe Murderer. Literally, when they go on their honeymoon, did either of you recognize that building that they when they go on their honeymoon at this, like, big place? Yeah, and they, like, which is called, like, in the movie, it's called Poet's Corner. Right, and it's like it's this, like else, yeah. it's some sort of bed and breakfast, and yeah. there's a whole. That's where the other film climaxes. Did either of you recognize that place? You know what that is? No, tell me. That is the mausoleum from Phantasm. Oh, that's right. Oh I did read God. that. Yeah. Get out! Unbelievable. Dude. And it was it was like uncanny at first because I was like, the mausoleum in Phantasm doesn't have a steeple. However, that establishing shot of it is like a matte painting. Yeah. In the background, there's like mountains above it. Um, and the 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 steeple was also a, a painting because when the film does climax on the roof with Amanda Plummer and the axe, the, the steeple is gone, which I think is very funny. But I was like, oh, this is this is like actually perfect. The the you know the honeymoon of so I married an ex murderer playing at like the great halls of death from Phantasm. Wow, I love that. Had no idea. Obviously, Marsh and I aren't nearly no. as well versed <laughs> in the, the Phantasm verse as you are. But. Uh, that establishing shot, unforgettable from Phantasm. I've you know studied it many a time so it was, yeah it was exactly the same in axe murderer yeah but you're right i mean like marsh to your point i mean like i think when i think back on the movie and like when i reflect on like what i enjoy about or what i admire about it like it isn't the romance the central romance between nancy travis and mike myers it's basically that climactic journey of 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 Tony of Anthony LaPaglia like saving the day and 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 again like his interactions with Alan Arkin who who was uncredited I don't know if you knew that in the oh, in wow. the film 
Alan Arkin apparently was just like, I want to do this because I want to work with Mike Myers and I want to be a part of this movie, uh, which is odd because then he doesn't have a single scene with Mike Myers. (laughs) But again, like, dude, all of the the stuff, the shtick, because again, like, you know, Tony sees himself as Serpico. That's what he wants to be. He wants to be like a cliche movie cop, but he's basically just doing paperwork. And my God, like every moment, of Alan Arkin in this, like when he explains to him, well, I've never even commandeered a vehicle. Now that sounds like a lot of fun. And that's the other thing. You're you're too nice. (laughs) I'm too nice? Yes, you're too nice. Why can't you be like the captain on Starsky and Hodge? You know where you come in and you haul me into your office and you bawl me out because you're sick and tired of defending my screwball antics to the commissioner? Why can't you do that? Well, the truth of the matter is I don't report to a commissioner. I report to a committee, some of whom are appointed, some elected, and the rest co-opted on a biannual basis. It's a quorum, so to speak. A quorum? Yeah. Their relationship to me is like the most touching relationship in the movie because, like, you know, Tony gives him this whole spiel, like, it's it's what I want. I want you to come in and kick my feet off the desk and and ball me out and tell me I'm a bad cop and I'm, I'm going to get thrown off the force. And then Arkin, like... His character, like he he internalizes that, and then the rest of the movie, he's trying to perform as this like cliche like police captain that's gonna come in and scream at him like it's fucking dirty Harry, but he has to like kind of like workshop it a little bit with him, like oh dude, those scenes are amazing, and then yeah, you get Michael Richards popping up there in a moment. It's funny because like the scene is. Michael Richards is just it's like some shitty newspaper guy. And again, surprising if you think about the timeline of everything. This, this is during Seinfeld, you know? And Michael Richards just has this cameo in here as this just like crappy journalist. And they're cracking jokes about obituaries. And Michael Richards thinks he's just, you know, ragging him about making fun of dead people in the obituaries. So he has this big flip out, Michael Richards style. And he's like, oh, yeah. I'm insensitive, you know, that's me, huh? <laughs> and he's like losing his mind. And Hillary turned to me when we were watching it. it prophetic. Was like, she was like, yeah, that's yeah. what she said. She's like, a few years later, he'd be saying the same thing to a crowd yeah. of people. <laughs> you know? He's like, dude, dark, dude. A hundred percent. Oh, yes, yes, I'm insensitive. I'm a very insensitive man. Stop your job. Look at the insensitive man. That's what they're paying you for. I mean, I think I think a lot of the bits in the climax in the Phantasm Mausoleum, like on their their honeymoon, right? They get married and they're off, and and it's like, yeah, it's this old timey place. They're the youngest people in there by far, uh, and then of course it becomes like this this you know ironic joke where he doesn't want to to consummate the marriage because he <laughs> thinks he's going to be murdered, and then all these old people are like, you guys should fuck, you know. Put him like, in the honeymoon chair. Know, yeah, put him in the chair. <laughs> the honeymoon yeah. chair. The honeymoon, the honeymoon chair fucking killed me. <laughs> yeah. And they like throw them on this chair. And they're like carrying them to their room. Like I think that's like that's all very inspired stuff. Uh, with I mean, those are just like wonderful extras with like you know big faces. Oh yeah, know? it's sort of like the like the bookends. Like the bookends are are here and you can again see in the like troubled history of them kind of being like, all right, we got this. And then of course it's going to build to this really great climactic moment, but it's all the, the kind of like 
the the softer moments that kind of sag in between of just him bumming around San Francisco trying to be the cool poet falling in love like that's where it just kind of it's like all right all right but again thankfully and 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 uh again as a testament to the actual production or making of the film or final cut this is a breezy 90 minutes i mean this movie does minus the the moments of i think his broader comedy it does just like man fly by for me uh the schlame touch yeah that schlame touch dude (laughs) that schlame slime that you can glide on (laughs) yeah Yeah. it's funny then too with the climax um there's like a double romantic comedy reversal of sorts at the end of saving face because the reveal that joan chen is pregnant with little yu's son the baby daughter is 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 revealed during the her wedding to one of those people that she to met Cho. in the Joan Chen yeah. in, in the Joan Chen speed dating and that's when Wilhelmina like shows up to the wedding p- provides the objection mother you shouldn't marry him you shouldn't be trying to save face here don't listen to what your father says you're in love at first she thinks with old you and then it's it, little you stands up he's like oh, it's actually me scandalous but they run out of there and it's right she's doing the graduate except yeah. with the mother and daughter they yeah. get on a bus they sit on the back of the bus they're giggling they're having a really good time this is after they had a huge falling out but then shit gets real shit gets real it all sinks in again and here we are at the graduate and then they decide that they also need to acknowledge what what they're preaching here about going after your true love and being you know living your truth right and that's and living Joan- independently like not right. living codependently which is like what this entire community they've been a part of struggles with i mean everyone is like in each other's lives it's it's like a very entwined group and i think that's also what's funny in that first climax you're talking about because when she does come in and break up this this marriage and then it's revealed that you know she's pregnant with little used child right it then kind of like spreads like all that like these revelations just spread like wildfire through the rest of the 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 people there like people just start standing up and like yelling at their spouse about something or I think there's one couple that's like, let's get a divorce. I mean, yeah. like, <laughs> it's like, it's kind of like this kind of like group, you know, realization that like, man, we're all full of shit, aren't we? All of us are living lies in our own ways. All of us are, are scared, are unable to, to, yes, uh, 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 chase our own truths or whatever. Yeah, and most importantly, Joan Chen can fucking get it, dude. Oh, and always. that's like the funniest, the funniest yeah. thing because yeah. you know, really, the punchline of the movie is is her being a- like, "I'm some disgusting 48 year old. Who would ever want to be with me?" You know, it's like <laughs> sign like, me up. Yeah, any, literally anyone. Yeah, uh, and as the film flashes forward. Uh, three months well we'll get to the the central romance in a second but uh when it does flash forward three months it's uh it's revealed that joan chen is no longer ostracized but in fact 
all the women want to know how to how to find like a 25 year old guy yeah. uh, to be their husband that's what you i mean know? it's like this moment where like the community was looking at her a certain way and then like her the courage in that moment like was something that everyone kind of admired you know and and yes now she becomes kind of the love guru the life guru even though her idea <laughs> was guru. yeah no mike myers michael myers <laughs> and the love michael, guru. michael myers alert the love guru <laughs> dude yeah but she is yeah she's then like you know a badass everyone sees her as like the cool kid in the in the in the group yeah. at the chinese buffet dance that they they go to <laughs> but yeah there is the second romantic comedy you know beat that does this it hits where joan chen and her daughter go to the airport because Vivian's on her way out. Going to Paris. She's going to Paris. She's going to get into this, you know, new dance. Um, is there? Is it the ballet? She's going to the ballet in Paris. Yeah, she's going to the ballet in Paris. She was pursuing modern dance. Yeah, she wants to do modern dance, but ballet is the prestige. And her, you know, she's been working her whole life towards ballet, even though it's no longer her passion. So that's also her personal, you know, her personal struggle, just as Wilhelmina's personal struggle is, you know, with Joan Chen and with uh, really coming out to, to anyone who isn't Vivian, you know. Uh, so. Yeah. Yes, we get like in Miami Vice, uh, an airport chase down. You know? <laughs> Just yes, like, like, in Miami like Miami Vice. Vice. Yeah. Right. Everybody I oversold, was thinking. I oversold it. Yeah. <laughs> it's also it's kind of like the wedding singer too, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is. I mean, you know, because she goes after her, proclaims her love, wants her to stay. She's like, "You don't want to do ballet. You want to do modern dance. You should stay here." And Vivian's ultimatum is, "Kiss me right now in front yeah. of everybody." And I'm not trying to undermine the moment, but it is like kind of funny that, you know, Wilhelmina's not able to do it. But like at that moment, it seems like everyone in the hallway has vanished. Yeah. That, like the only witness would be the guy who scanned your boarding pass. Yeah, the TSA you know? guy. <laughs> <laughs> Kiss me in front of this TSA guy. <laughs> I also was thinking too that like for me, I was reflecting on that moment and, and like, you know, I, I know obviously the idea here is that, you know, for her, it's also about like, you know, coming out publicly and being comfortable yeah. with that, with kissing, you know, another woman in front of people. But but I just kept thinking, too, that like if if anybody demanded me to kiss them suddenly in public, I probably like Wilhelmina would be like in public right now in front of everybody. I mean, like in this like dirty airport hallway. Yeah. Yeah. I get yeah. the stakes are much higher there, but I was also just thinking like that can't be the ultimate test there because some people are just not fans of PDA. Some people are just not comfortable with it, regardless of your sexual orientation, you know? Well, and this is, we should point out a, a pre broke back mountain uh, film, you know, oh, the, okay. the, you know time. the public, you know, they're, they're not ready for this. Yeah, It's know? very true. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing that it was a studio release in certain respects. Sure. You know, the fact that this was a Hollywood film yeah. of its era. Well, when you get Big Willie style behind it, you know, I mean, that, yeah. that, that's going to get you some cachet. I, I read that they needed uh, to get some more exterior shots of New York so the and just the general environment of New York could feel more present, but they didn't really have the funds to do like helicopter shots and they were able to sneak in some footage from a helicopter that was rented for shooting the will smith movie hitch 
because it was like still his production company. So they like tagged along with the Hitch team to dude. finish out that's, Saving see, Face. That's what I'm talking about. That's Big Willie style, dude. Wow. But yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, both of these movies, right, kind of just end up where a good romantic comedy does because we do flash forward three months later in Saving Face and Vivian and Will, they kiss publicly. They dance in front of the entire community and they all are, some of them are shaken, some of yeah. them storm out and disgust, but, you know, other people, they want to, they want to applaud. They think it's beautiful. They've and rapidly uh, radicalized a good amount of the uh, Chinese community uh, by the end. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of liberation uh, or at least, you know, throwing away certain sort of repressive uh, sort of things going on, yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. But I do want to say, you know, another film that ends with um, a big, exciting kiss, Andy. I got to tell you a little bit about this. Uh, so as I mentioned at the top of the episode, I almost picked this film from, well, what, what year was that? 2001. Yeah. Was it pre or post? When, did it come out before or after 9-11? I know it was like shot before 9-11. But, so it's this film shot in Chicago called On the Line, starring Lance Bass and Joy Fatone. And I'm just going to quickly give you the highlights, Andy, so you don't have to actually watch it. Though I, I would kind of encourage you to. It is, like, pretty funny. Uh, it's ultimately, like, not funny. and uh, It's, like, ultimately Funnier not... than So I Married an Axe Murderer? Or, no. You know? no, 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 <laughs> there, there are, like, a couple occasional, like, really weird things, but it's also just, like, a kind of movie where Joey Fatone, like, farts a bunch and then oh Lance Bass is just like without any charisma at all. But he he like meets a woman on the L and so much of this movie is spent on the CTA. It is like some of the most extended CTA sequences I've ever seen in a movie. And it's funny because most of it's just them circling the yeah, loop. Yeah, they're, they're looping. They're just spinning around and around the loop until they've run out of time and they, they get off of the stop. But he like, yeah, they, they fall in love because at the station... Marsh, maybe you could remind me which one of them instigates it, but I think she says something like, oh, I don't know anybody that like knows all the presidents. And he's like, I know all the presidents. And then they like recite all the presidents in order. Jesus. Well, that's, yeah, that's not how they meet, but that happens shortly after they meet. But that's when the sparks like really fly is what I'm saying. That's when they like realize they've got something. Yeah, and that's when in the background, you can see where Andy and I smoke in the alley at our workplace because right. this film has the the most shots of the Adams and Wabash stop uh, of any film ever made because wow. that's like the primary stop they are using in this film. So there is, you know, there's that element too. And I think Andy, you would appreciate that the sort of the construction of the film is that that Lance and Joey and their friends, they're Wrigleyville bros. Oh, and yeah. so there is like a very, I don't, I don't know what to say, slightly truthful sort of depiction of like vacant 2001 Wrigleyville guys. <laughs> uh, because that's like them. They're hanging out at this like fake Irish pub the whole time. They're like big cubbies guys. Uh, they go to a game. One of them gets hit, gets hit in the nuts with a ball by Sammy Sosa wow. who then has a line you know uh, at home plate he just says like a zinger it's so cringe <laughs> yeah uh, and Lance Bass works for Dave Foley 
as like an advertising dude at Reebok and all those scenes were shot in Canada because like Dave Foley couldn't be bothered to come down to Chicago. He probably well, had like, like custody, custody yeah. battles and like, yeah, <laughs> divorce shit going on. Yeah. Yeah. And Jerry Stiller has a heart attack because the Cubs uh, lose a, a game. Oh, boy. So, yeah. you know, I mean. That doesn't ring true. But I will say, right, like it's 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 definitely just loop in Wrigleyville cinema, but there are like a good amount of scenes in Chicago's parks that feel very real. Just like guys hanging out, grilling hot dogs, like on the baseball diamond yeah. in just a, like a pretty empty Chicago park. Yeah, with their gloves. Yeah, sounds like a Hallmark movie with a little bit more money behind it. Yeah. Yeah, and you can of course do the... Marsh and I were talking about it, the like Rock Hudson's home movies read on it too, because of course Lance Bass, like they're trying to pitch him as this just heterosexual leading man. And then of course, you know, Lance Bass famous for coming out on People magazine, right? And this whole movie feels like conversion therapy. And there's this preoccupation with he like can't hold on to a girl. He always like lets them go and it's everyone trying to get him to fuck and he just like won't do it. Just wants to hang out with the guys yep. in Wrigleyville. Exactly. Exactly. Which is also, yes, Boys Town if you're yeah. reading into it. Okay. You know? All right. Yeah. Uh, but right, you know, the film doesn't know all that. So uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that remains a, a theoretical fantasy. But yeah, um, yeah I mean, uh, thanks for bringing these. Uh, yeah, these rom coms. You know, they were uh, they were a little off beat, but they also hit all the beats. You know, so I think uh, we got a good look at yeah, sort of two two kind of off beat romantic comedies. Yeah, thanks for helping us fall in love again. Um, I mean, do you have um, a favorite film that makes you feel like you're falling in love or even perhaps an offbeat romantic comedy? What, what are some that you like? Well, like I said, uh, I, am a, I am a big screwball man, and I think uh, one of my favorites is uh, Leo McCary's The Awful Truth from 1937. Uh, that's got the, uh, you know, the bickering husband and wife vibe with Irene Dunn and Cary Grant. And to me, it's just, it's very beautiful and touching and just fucking hilarious. You know, I love it. It's got the dog. It's got some good slapstick. It's got a lot of zingers. Uh, and Irene Dunn, you know. I'd do what he did, you know, I'd go crazy, you know, and I'd hopefully have some good zingers along the way. That's an absence I've felt in both of these movies. I feel like a lot of the great romantic comedies have a good animal yeah. that, uh, like, you can defer to the in tradition. scenes that are yeah. starting to fall flat, you know. <laughs> these ones didn't have a good like animal. A, like a relationship on the rocks, you know, an animal can save it. Yeah. <laughs> And then, of course, uh, you know, a more recent one uh, that I would suggest to anyone, uh, Romancing in Thin Air from 2012, the great Johnny Toe Wakafe film with Louis Koo and Sammy Chang. Uh, fucking hilarious, just like great sort movie. of like winter, winter retreat uh, sort of romance with all these hijinks. I mean, it's it's outrageous and beautiful you know the past couple of weeks has been me 
just trying not to pick a Johnny Toe movie with the topics. He's done like a couple <laughs> hospital movies. He's done all the great romantic comedies, yes. all my favorites. You know, I was like, first thing I thought was like, ah, let's watch Don't Go Breaking My Heart 2. One yeah. of my favorite titles of any movie. Um, well, when you make 150 movies, you know. <laughs> yeah, a busy boy. Uh, so, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, those are those are two I, I love, you know. Hell yeah. Well, cool. Well, Andy, are we going to fall in love next week? What are we, what's, what's on the menu for us? Oh, um, no, not at all. You know, uh, the last, <laughs> I think the last couple of weeks, you know, we've been, we've been uh, all trying to, we've been trying to chill out. We've been trying to unwind. We've had a lot of, <laughs> a lot of pleasantness from a Pichat Pong in the hospital to Goran and his trains and, and now these, these lovely light uh, comedies, these romantic comedies. And, um, you know, I think we gotta, we gotta, we gotta shift gears here in a big way. Um, last weekend, uh, if you were paying attention, if, if anyone gives a shit, uh, there's a film that, that surprised a lot of people with its success at the BAFTAs, a film that has been slowly, uh, gathering steam during the awards season. And it even surprised me. It's a film that I watched when it came out recently. That film is the new German language, German production of All Quiet on the Western Front. My students have been talking about it. People have been asking about it. And, you know, savvy listeners know that war cinema is a is a, is a big portion of my journey through life. So I've been telling a lot of them to check out some other films covering similar territory, covering similar stretches of no man's land. So I think for anyone that is starting to be interested in this film or films dealing with the First World War, now's the perfect time, if ever, to dive in, to get lost in no man's land. So, folks, we're heading to the trenches. Next week, World War One, the Great War, the war to end all wars. Wow. Wow. <laughs> R.I.P. To, to all of to us. To everyone. Yes. <laughs> yes. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. You know what I don't understand? Why did you make us go through this? Why didn't you just say it was Xiaoyu? Be together. Tell him the meaning. He's obviously in love with you. Today he said, "I love you."
，明天谁知道？我是需要他有勇气，公开对我的感情。何况，我从来也没有机会看看外面的花花世界。其实，那个 Vivian 挺不错的。She's bleeding for Paris tonight。你是不是很喜欢她？